Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's uh, Monday night. I just had got up a long conversation <laughs> with my doctor. Oh boy, uh, that's a lot of fun. Let's switch our minds to something more lofty, and that is uh, the parsha. Uh, I'm gonna go a little out of order. Let's do parshas Vayigash this week, which is being sponsored by Falter, former Baltimoreans Stephen Irene Grossman in in Yerushalayim, I believe, if I remember correctly. They over in that nice new section. Uh, I forget what it's called, not from near Rechavia, wherever, wherever it's over there. And uh, they made successful Aliyah, and everybody in Israel, wherever they are now, has friends and relatives in the combat and so forth. And so, you know, our, uh, first of all, thank you for the sponsorship, and second, and it's nice to keep up the Baltimore memories. And third of all, everybody should be over there in Israel, especially if they have any relatives who are in harm's way. Uh uh, something happened to me today made me think about Parsha Vayigash. That's the reason I'm doing this right now. The heart of the story, of course, is that Joseph reveals himself to the brothers. I think you kind of know that story, right? But the part I want to that jumped out at me this year is the business about covet, right? I don't know if you notice, but uh, when Joseph reveals himself to the brothers, that's altogether an ambiguous situation. Uh, even in the Chazal, it's ambiguous. According to one Medrash, we've said this a lot of times, is a Medrash Abba, on the one hand, Medrash Tanchum and the other, look it up. Medrash Abba said, when the brothers heard it was Joseph, they like, nibble and me punted, they freaked out, and uh, even though he was alone without any bodyguards, because he had told everybody to leave the room, they came and embraced him, and so forth, he had a, a, a scene of a loving reconciliation. According to Medrash Tanchum, they said, that son of a gun, he's still at it, trying to freak us out, put us through all this psychological torture, let's kill him. And they tried to kill Joseph, but they were unsuccessful. So, in other words, it's unambiguous in the traditions of the Chazal, whether well, that was what you call a pleasant reconciliation, or I can't even use the word reconciliation, a pleasant mutual discovery or not. But that's not what I want to focus on, even though it's fascinating. I think at the last year or the year before, um, if you're interested, I'm interested in the covered part. Because as soon as he reveals himself, he says like this, uh, don't worry, don't get angry. In other words, that's a funny expression. Uh, that's Perg Hey, I guess. Don't get sad, don't get angry. Uh, he's talking to them themselves, I suppose. Uh, you could feel sad that you sold me into Egypt, you could feel angry. Uh, you know, that could be cut two ways. I mean, the language is wonderfully ambiguous. Are you angry at me or are you angry at yourselves? You know? And by the way, being sad and being angry at oneself is not the same thing, right? Sad is over a storm of misfortune. Angry is when you say, why did I do this? I should have done something else. So he's sort of like giving them the benefit of the doubt. It's a wonderfully 
complex, literary complex pasuk over here. Uh, you know, the fact that you sold me. However, what does he tell him to do? He says, go ahead and tell, uh, and and uh, come down to Egypt, because I have devoured a covet here, right? I'm in the height of my glory. God obviously set this up. God sent me here, in other words, to prepare a place for you to, to have, find a refuge, Laflate to Gedoah. There's a terrible famine raging. You're not able to live in the land of Canaan. And I set the thing up ordinarily. A country like Egypt wouldn't take in permanent residence to wait out the famine. And um, they make you buy by cash. And when the cash runs out, heck with you. You understand? I mean, that's what's going on. I want you to understand this very well. <clears throat> Joseph was the dictator of Egypt under Pharaoh. He gathered all the grain. The government now had a monopoly on the grain. If you were an Egyptian... You got your allotment, although by the time, even then, he was using market forces. When the famine hit, Joseph sold the grain to the farmers, okay, to the peasants. They didn't give it to him, even though it was their grain, but we talked about it last week. He very cleverly gathered it up. That's why Pharaoh said, I'll, I'll rise out of your policies. And... Um, he sells it to him only at the end of the parsha, when they say, "Listen, we're all broke. What are we supposed to do?" Then he said, "I'll turn you into serfs." Okay. Notice that's when market forces run out. Uh, you have no 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 choice but to sell themselves. Uh, that's that's when the capitalist system reaches full potential. You know, full development. When the, when 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 the consumers are reduced to serfdom to slavery. Uh, that's the famous critique of of. Uh, of capitalism. So that happened in the time of Joseph. But, okay, that's if you're Egyptian. What if you're not Egyptian? Obviously, the famine hit Canaan, Canaan, because all the brothers, brothers wouldn't be hungry. So what happened to the Canaanites? They're screwed. You go to Egypt with whatever money you have, and for hard cash, they'll sell you grain. I can imagine the price is double or triple because it's supply and demand, and you're a foreigner, and so who knows what you pay through the nose. And what happens when you run out of, you know, uh, money? You die. <laughs> you get it? Now, I may be wrong. I'm not sure about this. Uh, now I'm just playing around a little bit with ancient history. We do know that, this is interesting. We do know that the Egyptians uh, in the pre-Moses period, no, it was around the time we're talking about, roughly, uh, I have to look it up. The Egyptian, the Egyptians dominated Canaan. They were the suzerain, as they called it, of the Canaanites. Uh, one of the interesting uh, documents of uh, early, the earliest known document, I believe, of Jewish history, is the letter of Abdikiba to the Pharaoh in the time of Joshua, where he says some barbarian group is invading the country. If you, the Pharaoh, don't come and help us with soldiers. Then we're all doomed, and that was Taka was doomed. It was Yeshua ben Nun, um, and the Egyptians, I say before, kind of um, were the suzerains or the overlords of Canaan. So when we talk about the king of of Yericho uh, and the king of uh, Ai and all that. These are little small little things that they're under the general Egyptian overlordship. Where they come from? Now I remember vaguely you had the campaigns of. Uh, Tutmos III, uh, one of the famous 
pharaohs who used to be called the Napoleon of Egypt. And they've got stuff left over from him in, in Megiddo when you go up there. Uh, and he conquered a lot of stuff in his uh, famous campaigns. Tutmosha means the son of Tut. Tut is the name of the Egyptian god. The moon god, by the way. Keep that in mind, okay? So the important pharaohs at that time was Tutmosha and Ramosha. Tutmosha and Ramosha. The son of the moon, the son of the of the sun. The sun, in other words, the S-O-N of the S-U-N, son of the sun. You and I were called by the Greek corruption of Ramosha. We call it Ramses, right? But it means the son of Ra. Now, these are the two big, powerful pharaohs from that Tukufa. And how did the Egyptians get there? Now, I'm sure there are historical reasons. They fought the Hittites and things like that. I'm serious. But from the Parsha point of view, it could be that e that the Canaanites, in order to survive the um, famine, you know, agreed to Egyptian suzerainty over the country. They said, give us grain and we'll accept your your, your overlordship. Notice we'll live in Canaan, but you'll be the main bosses, which is why... When Yaakov dies, next week's Parsha, and he has this big fancy funeral, all the elders and big shots of Canaan go and participate in this Egyptian funeral because the funeral is being run by the Viceroy of Egypt, Joseph. And it's just an interesting situation that the Canaanites are honoring the burial of Yaakov Avinu. And they have a big ceremony in the Avery Yardin and so forth and so on. You know, uh, Yosef, in other words, uses... Uh, soft power, as we call it today, control of food in order to extend Egyptian political domination. Uh, that just shows you what a smart cookie was. And Raka Kisi Egnumi Mecca, Pharaoh gained out of all this. Now, he says in the um, Parsha, I have tremendous covet here. I run the place. Therefore, I can take you in and give you exceptional treatment. Right, kill mechiyosh lachani olhim lefnechem, lachios lachem, the flate of gedola. You have a tremendous plata, uh, um, refuge, and he says this didn't happen on its own; it happened through divine providence. Notice, I ended up being sold in, in, by you into slavery, and then I ended up by Patifar, and then I was framed by Patifar's wife, and then I ended up in the jail. And as I told you last week, he, he used that jail to learn. Egyptian politics, and then I emerged as the dream interpreter after having had a PhD education in Egyptian economics, thanks to people like the butler and the baker and the other elite people that, with whom he interacted in the jail. And next thing I know, I'm char I, I interpreted Pharaoh's dream as foreshadowing the, the coming, um, you know, famine. And now I'm in charge. I mean, I'm in charge. Not only that, but power really follows me. By see, many love the fire. Look, look what he says to the brothers when he reveals himself. The Torah doesn't tell you things for nothing. Everything that happened is because of Hashkacha uh, Pratis. And he made me an of, a father. Now I know Rashi says a patron, but he says, uh, of, a father to Pharaoh. Right? These are uh, increasing echelons of overlordship. To Paro, he's like an of. To the Base power, he's an Odon. And to the whole Mitzrayim, he's a Moshal. Right? A Moshal means I'm the dictator. You do what I say, shut up. Odon means less than that. Means that I'm the boss. But of course, I have to explain why I'm doing what I'm doing. And to power, I'm like an of. 
which is such a wonderfully interesting kind of description. What is the nature of Joseph's relationship with Pharaoh? He kind of dominates Pharaoh because Pharaoh realizes that he's smarter than Pharaoh. Uh, you know, you have prime ministers in history and you have prime ministers. Some of them are subject to micromanagement by their sovereigns uh, and some of them the opposite. They attain such a dominance, political dominance through their personality of the situation that they dominate the sovereign even though the sovereign is is officially in charge. But short of that, the prime minister is, is, is the of. You understand? Comes to mind Bismarck, who was such a strong and dominant personality and so smart that the king uh, of Prussia, King William, Wilhelm, you know, came to just follow whatever Bismarck said. It's a famous scene where he where a certain thing Bismarck said, do this, and the other said, no, don't do it, and Bismarck said, you have to do it. And the king says to him, I don't agree with you, but I'm going to do what you say, because I know you're smarter than I am. I don't understand your how you operate, but I know that you're smarter than I am, and therefore I'm going to listen. Yeah, Hitler made a movie exactly about that, the movie Bismarck in German, where the king says, I, I, I don't understand you, but I'm going to follow what you say anyway. And that's how Paro is with Yosef. Of, you know, Leparo. Uh, of course, Yosef knows how to play fair, but nevertheless, it's powerful there. And when he goes on, he says, he got a Temlaovi, it's called Kvodi Mitzram. Again, again, the reference to the covet, to the power, to the glory, to the, to the, the, the Moshel, you know, the Memshala, the Adnus, and all the rest of it. He got a Temlaovi, it's called Kvodi Mitzram. Basically, called Shereisim. And tell him what you saw, and then bring my father down over here. And Taka, when they come back to, to Yaakov, how's it go? Oh, Yosef Chai, who you, Moshe Beretz Mitzrayim, Joseph's alive and he's the Moshe. He is running the place, right? And even though Yaakov has a heart attack, but then he says, Now I know the Rashi that says the Eglarufa, but what's the plain meaning? He saw a fleet of Rolls Royces, you know, a hundred cars. Maserati, I don't know, you know, whatever the teenagers know, the, the expensive cars. He says, a whole bunch of them. And he says, that didn't come from nowhere. You know? Or something like that. Yaakov got a achias. So, it's very interesting, the position of Joseph over here, in terms of his covet, his mastery, his power. It's like emphasized over and again in, in this part in the text, which is just interesting. Now, I'll tell you where I'm going with this. <clears throat> Yosef, at least according to most Mepharshim, and probably it just makes sense, has to be dominated by his famous two dreams that he had when he was young. He just was not smart, and he blabbed it off about the sheaves and the chadasar, the sun, the moon, and the stars bowing down to him. Now, the Jewish Mepharshim were all, you know... Uh, obsessed with the idea that the sun, the moon, and the stars is the father, the mother, and um, and the 11 brothers. Fine, which, yeah, I hear that, you know, I get that. And, indeed, the brothers all bow down to him when they think he's selling the grain, and the father bows down to him in the beginning of Parshat Vayichi. The mother, I don't know, I mean, let's put it this way, does lay about, yeah, it's about, about Tish Ravenna. that's by Esau, I don't remember if it says that Leah bows down to him. But, you know, the sun, the moon, and the stars. 
uh, that that they have. Now the thing is, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. No, that that's one shot, of course, obviously. But I'll tell you what it means to me. He sees the dream coming true because he's become the master of Egypt. And the sun, the moon, and the stars would refer to the Goyim. And literally, the sun and the moon are the two main gods of Egypt. And Pharaoh is, is like I say, Tutmosh and Ramses. And some of the other ones also have the same name. Uh, which is, these are the, uh, quote-unquote, the children of the sun, the children of, you know, the all the exalted titles that the pharaohs gave themselves. And the whole religion, everything else, is now bowing down to this Jewish guy. Um, it's remarkable. And he tells the brothers, look, I'm running the whole show over here. When I, I'm a little kid from Bar Park. I'm running the whole show over here, you know. I'm a of the paro, other than and Moshe Bechol Mitzrayim. And they do whatever I tell them. Because of my track record. They do whatever I tell them. Now, the thing is, why? Because they know I'm right. And so the covet that they give me is, is something I do not abuse. So when I was young and told you I was going all powerful, you freaked out and tried to kill me, not realizing that covet and power, sometimes, if they're wielded properly, are good tools and not bad ones. They're good and not bad. <clears throat> you know, let me give you an example. I once had a couple that I knew that came to me for a Shalom Bias question. And it so happened, and, you know, it was a, a shticklebitter situation. I'm not going to go into details. But it so happened that this couple, both of them, how should I put it, worship me. You know what I'm saying? They're really big chassidim of mine. I'm not saying they're right. I'm saying they're wrong. I'm just saying, but that's that's what that was the the situation. And if I said something, ooh, that was it. Uh, that happened to be the situation. And there was a certain, like I say, shalom bias, and it was a serious one. But because they both regarded what I said with such extreme whatever, so when I say, listen, this is what you have to do. You do this, and you do that. And, you know, and, and uh, you know, jump and stand and stand on your head and spit wood nickels and do whatever needs to be done. And they did it. If I hadn't told them that, and they hadn't regarded me the way I was, they wouldn't have done it. Not in a million years. If they go stomp to a marriage counselor or something like that, they wouldn't listen. But because the great and powerful Wizard of Oz, Rabbi Katz, said to do so, so that's how it worked. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it really worked. Now, I don't like to do marriage counseling or anything like that. I'm just telling you, I might say Shahaya. And because the situation was what it was. And it turned out in the end. So what does that mean? I had to covet, but I used it in the right way. So then, it's not a sign of being arrogant or something like that. It turned out that it was a, you know, a utilitarian tool. You get what I'm saying? In other words, th that's where the cover fits in. Now, I'm not glorifying myself. I'm just sharing a story. I don't think I've ever told anybody. But I'm just trying to show you that if someone has power uh, or influence, what do you do with it and how do you use it? 
And if you do it right, and if you use it right, then it's a different story. You know, I um, did a talk on Saturday night at Shomri. You know, I do the, every year I do four years in Israeli history. And uh, Derek Hager, we're talking about Asia and all this. And um, 1947, when they had the UN vote, there will be in Israel, there will not be in Israel. There will be partition in Palestine, including a Jewish state, or there will not. And it was a tight business to get the number of votes to get it passed in the United Nations. And the Zionists lobbied like crazy, naturally. And I remember and one of the countries that was very key was Philippines, which was a relatively newly independent country after the Second World War. And the Philippines going to vote against Israel. They, The foreign minister, Carlos Romulo, favored the Palestinians. You know, there's an argument for that. And the pro-Israel guys were like desperate. And then they found out that the president of the Philippines, not the foreign minister, the president of the country, had back in the 1930s, for the war, been a golf partner with this Jewish doctor. I can't remember exactly the guy's name. He's either an engineer or a doctor, one or the other, who was in the Philippines at that time, an American guy, and he used to play golf like five times a week. In the 30s. And this guy was one of those Jews that has nothing to do with Judaism. And I forget where he lived, but it wasn't in New York. And somehow or other, they tracked him down, and they called him up, and they said, listen, we need you for Israel. you got to talk to the president of the Philippines and change their mind. And he says, i got nothing to do with Israel. i got nothing to do with Judaism. I never claimed to have anything with Judaism. And they basically said like this, listen, the next five minutes is your Judaism. <laughs> you get what I'm saying? Was, this, this is of Leparo, Lord and Basic Moshe, Bechalaj, and Eretz Mitzrayim. This is your chance to play a role in Jewish history. Then you can go back to sleep. You say, then you have to think they're Jewish. But you were obviously given this power, this influence, for this moment in November of 1947. And he, it worked. He said, okay. And he called the guy up. He changed the guy's mind. And the Philippines voted uh, for Israel against the wishes of the foreign, of the Secretary of State. So that's a case where the guy had some power, some influence, and he used it the right way. That's a different story. Now, the problem is when you have a powerful person who misuses or fails to use power in the right way. The worst thing in the world is to have covered and guilt and there's all this stuff, and you're not doing anything good with it. If you have the covenant and the money and the other things, and you make something out of it, right, then it's a different story. Yosef didn't realize himself when he was 17 years old. He's going big and powerful one day, and all the sheaves are going to bow down to him, and the sun and the moon and the stars are going to bow down to him. Farvos, what, what, why is this going to happen? So the brothers understood He's speaking a megalomaniacal basis, and he's talking about becoming a a terror and forcing, as a tyrant does, everyone to, to bow down to him, or else he'll kill him. And maybe he'll kill him even if they bow down to him, because he'll be a sadistic tyrant. This is what they thought, and Yosef himself didn't know what the dream meant. In order to say to him, "No, that's not what I have in mind," but now, years later. After all the events that happened, when you get to Parsha Vayigash, and you see the transpiring of events, and now you see what Yosef did attain that power, and he says, and, and only through God, 
Lifnechem. Loatem Shlachtim Osi Heni Kimalim. Who put me in this position to be in Egypt and be a viceroy? Hashem. Right? So it wasn't my ambition. It's not shot that I came to Egypt, dropped my Jewish identity, embraced Egyptian culture, engaged in Egyptian politics, worked my way up the greasy pole, like the Israeli said, till I was able to worm my way into Pharaoh's confidence and, you know, get all the others out of the way and take over as prime minister. That's not what happened. I was in jail. I was in, I mean, I was a slave. I was in Patifar. I was in jail. And then I had the butler and the baker. And here I am. And I knew the dream. And, and, and this put me where I am now. You understand? So Hashem did this. Hashem didn't do this so that I would simply be able to strut and boast and look how great I am, you know, like a Trump or somebody like that. No. He put me in here for a reason. I have a destiny. When I had the dream and everybody's bowing down to me, they're bowing down to me for a reason. The sun, the moon, the stars, the Gantavel is bowing down to me. And the sheaves, by the way, are bowing down to me. In other words, the economy is bowing down to my advice. The, the food supply is bowing down to me in order to save everybody. When Joseph was running Egypt, the people said to him, Hechi Sonu, you're the ones who have given us you're the one who's given us life. While he's alive, they venerated him. They were grateful to him. Because he knew otherwise he'd die. I mean, they would have died. Later on, that's politics. But in his time, he was hot stuff. Why? Because they said, we give you total power. And they did give him total power. And he used it. And he used it for a good purpose, for a constructive purpose. So then you misinterpreted the dream. I myself didn't know the dream. You say, I myself didn't know the dream. And so, do the brothers bow down to him? Yes, if you want to call it that. I can't see that this glorious dream, the sun, the moon, and the stars are bowed down to me, was really Mekoyim when the brothers bowed down to this guy they thought was, you know, the the viceroy of Egypt, the guy in charge of the guy in charge of food supply. In other words, under false pretenses. You understand? It, it, under false pretenses. Uh, it could be. Yeah, I mean, I get it. But it sounds more like the sun, the moon, and the stars is the whole Egypt. That the sheaves, the alumim, the Sokha Sada, the Goyim is the Egypt. And they're bowing down to me willingly and out of gratitude because I'm the one who knows how to save them. Okay? Uh, that's a different story. So it turns out that Yosef, when he was young, had dreams of glory. But you shouldn't be opposed to him having the dream of glory. They were not smart. They didn't see it that way. Okay? That's not how they held. They saw it as a threat and all the rest of it. And the covet and the, and the power that he has is called Kvodi Beretz Mitzrayim based Kosheri Isam and the Agolos. All this was used by him uh, to in, in, a, in a way that people say, like it's, it's a good thing he's got the power. If this was left to a vote, probably would mismanage the, the economy. This guy's a smart cookie and he knows how to store the grain away and how to give it out and distribute it and all the rest of it. So 
It's just interesting. What do you do with COVID? What do you do with 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 Aisha? Um Sometimes we have an history that someone has all this COVID and Aisha, and people say, "Yes, it's a good thing he has it because he's using it the right way." I myself wouldn't do that. Unfortunately, many many times, the person has the COVID, and the person has the other stuff, the Aisha. But I wouldn't say he's using it in the right way. For example, today, if anybody, today, today, right now as we speak, if anybody has any of the COVID, they got to use it in the fight for Israel, in the fight in public opinion, you know, to try to influence as much as you can, to fight all these Mamzerim that are against us, all the Amalekites. Um, that's why I see, when I read the paper, here and there, you'll see, not a lot, but you'll see some Jewish movie star or... Um, Nobel Prize winner, who'll do the right thing and say the right thing uh, and stand up. Most of them are the cover for themselves, the money for themselves. A lot of these Hollywood stars and junk like that. You know, you're, you know, they're, they're, they're thinking, suppose you have a Jewish Hollywood star and now they come out in favor of the Arabs. So what does that mean? You got the covered, you got the usher, but you're not using it the right way. That's, that's how the brothers thought Yosef would be. But he turned out, obviously, to be of a different sort turned to be uh, very classy, and he uses whatever power he has, whatever influence he has, to embed his people in Egypt. Uh, I said before, Yosef was very smart, and he understood the Egyptian mentality. Therefore, he told the brothers, stay in Goshen, and, you know, like I said before, just live in, um, you know, don't try to move into Jackson, you know what I'm saying? Just live by yourselves in another area. Uh Later on, as long as he was alive, that you know, and they listened to him, it worked. Because if you're out of sight, you know, that's uh, that's probably the best. Later on, things turned different. So the irony, I guess, is that by the time this parsha is over, they must be kicking themselves. The brothers, we tried to kill this guy twenty, thirty years ago, however long it was, because. He was going to reach a destiny where everybody bows down to him. It's a doggone good thing that he reached a destiny and everybody bowed down to him, or else we would be dead today. Our father would not be able to survive. So what you feared turns out to be the thing you rely upon, you know, for for your survival. That I guess was the biggest revenge, you might say. I don't mean to come in a bad way, because Hashem doesn't operate that way. The opposite is to come in the best way. Then the come is that the thing you were afraid that I would attain turns out the thing that today you thank your lucky stars that I attained because otherwise you wouldn't be alive for it. And when you worried about the sun and the moon and the stars bowing to me and the sheaves and the others bowing to me, you're darn right. Now you say, Baruch Hashem, that, he, that this would happen. And I, you know, the from spin would be that the brothers see from over here, you know, uh, that the bonus shalom runs the world. I mean, in, 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 in a way that they hadn't discerned before, even though they're great people, obviously, shift they call and all the rest of it. But now they see the, the, the fulfillment of the dream, which which terrified them, turned out to be, you know, the Bershom knows how to run the world and move the chess game around. Anyway, I thought that's very ironic. Thanks once again uh, to the Grossmans. As I say, I hope you're enjoying your retirement, Yerushalayim, and that everybody should be safe over there. And it shouldn't be the rockets and all the other stuff flying everywhere, and the Kalei should have a final Nitzachon in this uh, in this campaign. Uh, even then, it might not be the end of our difficulties, but let's get at least the first base, as they say.
and have a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.